Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Well, previously on Lawfully Explained, we have spoken with the consulting principal of Keypoint Law, Monica ross Marinick, about why often where there's a will, there can be a day in court and all of the challenges that can come from challenges to wills. Today, we want to talk to Monica about what happens when somebody that you love doesn't have a will and what you can do when you might have to make very serious decisions very quickly. So Monica, thank you for coming back to Lawfully Explained. Thanks, Amy. I firstly want to ask you, and I do have to confess something at first, which is when we last spoke to you, which was about 18 months ago, I committed to you that after that episode, I would go and get a will. I have not gone and gotten a will, which is very bad and something that I should absolutely be correcting. But this actually leads me to my first question, which is, is it common for people to die without a will? Amy, it is common. Um, It's more common that people die with a will. In 2021, there were 56,000 people who died in New South Wales and there were 26,500 applications for probate or letters of administration. A lot of people die without a will. I would say more people die with a will that have valuable assets that need to be dealt with after death. Do you frequently get inquiries from relatives whose loved ones have died without a will and they're, they're unsure of what to do next? Yes, it's a problem we have to deal with reasonably regularly. Um, The first issue is um, a will creates a lot of structure around death. It tells us who is authorised to dispose of the body and arrange the funeral, which is very important to some people. It appoints an executor, so somebody who has the authority to go and look for documents and deal with things after someone has passed away. People do die without a will, but it's more common that they die with a will. And that, as I said, gives a lot more structure to the family members. The difficulty of people dying without a will is who is the appropriate person to do all those things? And to answer that question, we have to know what relatives of the person who's passed away are alive at the date of their death to discern who would be authorised to do those important functions. How complicated does it make the process if somebody doesn't have a will? Like, Do you have examples of some complications that have arisen quite quickly when someone has passed away and it's clear that there's absolutely no will anywhere to be found? Dying without a will makes it a lot more complex. A lot of Australians have relatives who have been born overseas. I have a parent who was born outside of Australia. That's a very common thing for Australians to have. There are countries where there are wars and they can't obtain source records like birth certificates and death certificates and divorces and marriage certificates. If you're administering someone's estate who died without a will, you need all of those records to prove to the court that you are the person with the most standing to bring an application for letters of administration of their estate on the basis of intestacy, which is they died without a will. That's far more complicated than an application of probate with a will. 
First of all, you have to see who is the appropriate applicant to apply. You have to determine who the relatives are and prove that they were the relatives by those source records like birth certificates, etc. And then you have to determine which of the closest relatives is the person entitled to apply. There might be multiple siblings, so there might be an argument between siblings about who applies and who doesn't. You're getting a lot of arguments or the possibility of a lot of disputes to get pretty much basic issues as to who should apply when there's no will. I'm interested when you mention that sometimes there can be difficulties if documents are in other countries if people were born overseas or subsequently moved to Australia. Is a will that was created in another country legally binding in all other countries? Not necessarily. It depends where the will was made, um, the execution requirements and which countries we're talking about. I mean, a lot of us are modern people. You know, you might own Google shares, which might be registered in America. So you might inadvertently have assets in another jurisdiction. And a lot of people, you know, international travel is so common. A lot of people have a diverse ethnicity where they have family members or um, an interest in family property or assets overseas. It's a very common phenomenon. And so because of the nature of modern living where assets can be easily acquired in other jurisdictions, a lot of people have to think about, well, do I do a will in this jurisdiction and do I do a will in another jurisdiction? The most common scenario is where people have an interest in valuable assets in multiple jurisdictions. They do a will in each of those jurisdictions. If they don't do a will, we have to determine where the person was living at date of death to determine which law applies to their estate. I'll give you an example. If I had a fellow who passed away and he lived in Hungary at the date of his death, And imagine he had some assets in New South Wales, maybe a property in a bank account. Hungarian law applies to his estate, depending on certain circumstances. So if he had a will and he made a will in Hungary, then we would seek to get a grant of that will in New South Wales and that would deal with his New South Wales assets. If he didn't have a will in Hungary and he died intestate, that is, he died without a will in Hungary, then um, Hungarian law largely determines how his estate is distributed. So it's it's highly complex. And we often have these problems where we have to get the source documents from another country, we have to get them translated, we have to get someone to apply. The person who might be applying might not be in New South Wales, so they have to appoint an attorney to act for them. It's highly complex. It's just so much easier if people do a will. And, you know, the most complex application I I recall ever having was a person who died in the US. Each state in the US has a different intestacy law. The only asset they had in New South Wales was one bank account. They had married, divorced, remarried, their wife died, they had two children, they went through a gender reassignment and they lived in three different states of America. So I had to prove which of the states they lived in at date of death, which they were domiciled because the law was different in each of the three states. I had to prove that they were the person in the death certificate um, because that had a change of name and gender. And I then had to get two grants of probate, one for their previous spouse and then for the three children. It was a nightmare, all to get access to $80,000 in a single bank account. How complicated is a case like that for the family? Like, is this just the lawyer's responsibility to handle or how much, how much impact does this have on the family having to chase these documents up and things like that? 
it's enormously complex for them because they have to get all these documents, they have to get it to the lawyer, they have to swear affidavits in support of the application. It's not um, like getting in the back of the Uber, um, you know, it, it, it's a complex process that people have to be involved in and ha- people have to cooperate in and that's why making a will makes it so much easier because if you have a dysfunctional family or relatives who don't see eye to eye or aren't even on speaking terms, it makes those applications nearly impossible or highly complex because you need cooperation from people to provide documents, to assist and to provide the evidence necessary to get that complex application through the court. The complicatedness of that sounds very intense. And also like bearing in mind that this is for people going through this, this is generally happening at a really distressing, awful time for people. I just want to quickly, and we did ask you some of these questions in season one, but just as a bit of a refresher to make sure that everybody who, like me, obviously forgot things in season one, like saying I would get a will, but how can someone ensure that a will is legally valid? To be valid, a will has to be in writing, a document signed by the willmaker in the presence of two adult witnesses who aren't beneficiaries under the will. On the face of it, that seems pretty basic, but it's far more complex than that. And the complexity arises from how we hold assets. Like, I'm married, I own a property with my husband, we own it as joint tenants. So, although I have a will, if I die before my husband, then my property will pass to him. But there are other assets in my sole name which I would need a will to deal with. So if people's ownership of assets and affairs are quite simple, the will can be quite simple. And a good will is often more general and doesn't deal with specific gifts because, you know, I might have this car today and I might my 20-year-old kid might ride it off next week and then I'll have a new car. So we don't refer to specific assets. We have wills where we generally give gifts in proportions rather than specific gift because what I own today, I might not own at the date I die and my will to be a good will should deal with all of my assets at date of death. So I don't refer to my Jeep Cherokee. Um, I refer to my motor vehicle at date of death. I don't refer to my particular bank account because I might change banks or, or whatever. We're more fluid as individuals. We change things. So a well-drafted will is one that deals with all of our assets, disposes all of our assets, appoints an executor and discloses in some specific form what's to happen. I imagine in your work as well, you also have to deal with cases where things things in life change very quickly and people who were otherwise living quite healthily, things can tragically turn and people can end up suddenly very, very sick where decisions are having to be made by family members very quickly. I want to talk about that and I know that there's a lot of different parts of that, so I'm keen to get your expertise on all of that. But just in the first instance, if someone receives news that someone that they love isn't going to survive the illness or injury that they've been hospitalised for. Do loved ones have time to try to track down wills and, and statements that they may have, that that person may have left? Well, it's a really difficult problem, isn't it? Because these are difficult conversations at a difficult time. And we often are asked to go and see someone who's in hospital or end of life decisions and to check out whether or not they have a valid will, a power of attorney or an enduring guardianship. In a perfect world, all of that would be sorted well before they became ill. If someone is ill, then there's lots of 
bigger issues we have to consider. It's not just whether they have those things in place, but whether they have the capacity to make them if they don't have them in place. Because if you accept that somebody who is in hospital is ill and they may be under the influence of medication, they may not have capacity to do the things that really need to be done to have somebody else, like their loved ones, assist managing things during their lifetime or deal with their estate on their death. That's complicated by a will is not a document that an attorney can ordinarily get access to. So if your loved one is in hospital and they don't have capacity, even if you were the appointed attorney for them, that doesn't necessarily in New South Wales entitle you to see what's in their will. So in a perfect world, people get their affairs in order long before they get to that point. In an imperfect world where people don't get that stuff organised, like their will, their power of attorney and enduring guardianship, and they are in hospital or there has been a crisis that needs attention, then, you know, the effort to do it is urgent, often costs more because you've got lawyers running around to hospital beds, not clients coming to see them in their offices. You've got an additional threshold that the lawyer has to go through to satisfy themselves that the person wanting to do this has capacity because when you go to a hospital, you're already on notice that they may not, or there may be an issue, or there may be a health crisis that you need to have at least consider. And then you're doing all these things urgently. Now, of course, there are three different things we'd look at. There's the will, which is what happens to someone's assets after they've passed away. There's a power of attorney. A power of attorney is a document where you authorise somebody else or several other people to manage your financial affairs if you become incapacitated. So that's buying and selling shares, buying and selling real property, accessing your bank account, Centrelink, Medicare, all of those financial things that you ordinarily would do for yourself without thinking. It's getting somebody authorised to do those things for you. And what's enduring guardianship? An enduring guardianship is all the non-financial things like um, receiving medical treatment, consenting to medical procedures, allied health services like physio, chiro, dental, and both a power of attorney and an enduring guardianship are different documents in New South Wales. They don't, they don't do the same thing. You might not appoint the same person. Your power of attorney would be somebody who you trust implicitly and ideally would have very specific limits on it. Um, but the power of attorney speaks for itself. So whatever's in the power of attorney is what your attorney is authorised to do. And there may be things in it that they're specifically not authorised to do. And obviously, if you know, if, if you have a partner, the logical thing is you would appoint your partner. If you have children who are adults, you might, and, and you don't have a partner, you might consider appointing your children. But the power of attorney, because it's like putting the cookie monster in charge of the cookie tin, Um, (laughs) you need to have checks and balances and more is less on a power of attorney. So if you have three children, you would want at least two or three of them to be on the power of attorney because sometimes you might find there's a rogue who, you know, is the cookie monster and can't resist putting their hand in the cookie. Things that they stand the most to gain from making all of the decisions. Absolutely. Can a will ever be done on someone's behalf? I'm thinking now of the kind of the person who might be trying to think, I I stand the most to gain here? 
If someone has lost capacity, they may have lost capacity for a number of reasons. They may have never had capacity, so someone who had a childhood illness or accident where they never had capacity, or they might have had capacity but suffering dementia and no longer have capacity to to do a will. In those circumstances, the Supreme Court of New South Wales has authority for someone to apply to make a will for the person who never had capacity or who has lost capacity. However, a very complex application. You have to satisfy a judge that the will you're asking the court to make is the will that the person would have made had they have capacity to do it. And because we have intestacy legislation in each state and territory in Australia, if the appropriate outcome for the person who no longer has capacity is that their estate be administered on the basis of the legislation for incapacity, then there's no need to run off to the court and get a will. But I'll give you an example. One is a case where a young person suffers catastrophic injuries during their childhood. They've never had capacity to make a will in their life and they're never going to regain capacity. Under the intestacy laws, if they have parents in New South Wales and they die without a will, it would go to the parents. But let's imagine in this example, one of the parents caused the injury to them. Well, you wouldn't want that parent to benefit under their will. So that might be an application where you would apply to the court for a statutory will for this person. Another example is one where imagine a lady had capacity and was married and imagine her and her husband divorced. She didn't change her will after the divorce. And imagine she had a valid will in which her whole estate went to her husband and then she loses capacity because she has dementia. And then her attorneys or a litigation guardian on her behalf run off to the family court and get orders finally disposing of her property interests between her and her ex-husband. But that doesn't change her will. And her relatives might think, well, it's not appropriate that her whole estate still go to her husband because she's done a property settlement with him and she's just lost a large proportion of her assets. Yeah, we hate this guy. We don't want him to get paid twice, right? Yeah, not at all. And if she doesn't have capacity, that might be a very good example of why if she no longer has capacity and the chances are she's not going to regain capacity, then we might, her relatives might go, we need to go to the court and get a statutory will for her because she has a valid will and so the intestacy provisions are not applicable and the will she has is not appropriate any day of the week. Picking up from that example, what happens in a situation where you may have had a conversation with someone and someone's like, oh, that reminds me, I need to do my will because I need to get like my toxic ex out of my will. And then something happens and that person passes away or gets very ill and you you know that that's what they wanted. You had a conversation with them about it. But when it comes to the time that they've passed away, the will doesn't reflect that conversation. Is there anything that you can do? Well, there's two times you can address that. The first is before they've passed away. If you know they have a valid will and they've made this comment and they no longer have capacity, so they've been involved, for example, in a car accident where they don't have capacity, then you could apply to the court for an urgent statutory will and give evidence about what they expressed as their wish. And um, you would have multiple people giving evidence about hearing the will maker say, I I don't want my toxic ex to get anything and, and, and I want my wealth to go to whomever. Then you could bring that application. Once the person has passed away, that ship has sailed. It's a much, much more difficult problem because if someone passes away with a valid will, it's 
largely set in concrete unless you bring an application to set it aside. There's not really a lot you can do because if they never revoked their will, then it was valid at the date they passed away. So you then are in the realms of trying to negotiate, which is tricky, or you're looking at a contested probate application. Maybe they did a draft will or an informal will, but it was never properly executed. That's a very complex and expensive application. Or a family provision claim, possibly, um, of the persons who, who bring an application because they had an expectation and they are eligible under the legislation to bring a claim. But that's not going to give the outcome of what the will maker could have done in a will. So if you bring a family provision claim and you had expectations the whole estate was going to come to you, in no universe does a family provision claim get you that outcome. It gets you, even if you're successful, it gets you a small legacy, not what you were hopeful of. In a situation like that, that someone has expressed a wish to you that they want to get their toxic ex out of their will, but you don't stand to gain anything from it. They're not saying, I don't want them to have it, but you can have it. Does that make it easier if it doesn't look like you're trying to push it to get something? Like you're not the cookie monster in the situation anymore because you're not, you're not getting anything. You're just saying they didn't want that person to have anything. Ultimately, the courts assess these statutory will applications on the um, quality of the evidence. And, you know, Judges don't make statutory wills willy-nilly. They have to be carefully considered because it's a big decision that a judge is making. So you have to give a lot of evidence. Whether you have an interest in it or not is not determinative of your likely success, but you have to give a lot of evidence from third parties and independent sources of what the willmaker wanted from conversations that various people had with the willmaker. So, you know, their friends and family saying, I want this toxic ex out of my life and I've done a will, I have to fix it. I don't want them to get a cent. But it's a tricky, it's a tricky application. I mean, all of these things are very expensive, complex applications. I can't encourage people enough to circumvent all of this problem and drama and crisis and chaos in your life, just do a will. Mm. It just makes it simpler for everybody. As lawyers working in deceased estates, we're often dealing with these highly complex applications and they mostly arise because people didn't get their shit together during their life Mm. or didn't get their affairs in order during their life or got their affairs in order but didn't change them at the appropriate time. I mean, that would be like buying a car and thinking, oh, well, I'm just not going to insure it. I'm just going to, I'm going to wing it. Mm. Who does that? (laughs) People buy a car, they register it and they insure it. I mean, the cost of a will would be less than the cost of registering and insuring a car per annum for most people. It's not an expensive thing and it doesn't need to be done every year. Gosh, I've, I've done two wills in my life and I'm 54. They were 25 years apart and they're good. It's not not an expense you spend very often and it's not a huge expense for the for the bang for your buck really is a great idea mm. like don't live for drama and don't die with drama yeah and don't create it by inaction during your lifetime turning to power of attorney and enduring guardianship and when it comes to those decisions that have to be made when someone is still alive but they might suddenly be very ill how quickly can those roles be assigned if someone does fall ill very suddenly? Because I know you're saying in a perfect world, this would all be locked in place ahead of time. Can things like power of attorney be granted pretty late in the piece? If the person has capacity, um, they can be done pretty quickly and late in the piece. 
if the person is in hospital like the earlier example and they don't have capacity, then they can't give a power of attorney and enduring guardianship. But that's not the end of the road. There's a tribunal, NCAT guardianship division, where the loved ones could apply for an order. It doesn't happen overnight. Even quick matters take a few months and they have the power to appoint a financial manager and a guardian for the person who's lost capacity. So in a perfect world, you'd have a power of attorney enduring guardianship well in advance. In an imperfect world, if something happened but you still had capacity, you could do your own power of attorney enduring guardianship. If that ship has sailed because the person's lost capacity, then you, you're limited to an NCAT guardianship application. How can the rights of an individual be protected if they are suddenly incapable of preparing a will or making these decisions when it comes to power of attorney or enduring guardianship? If they still have capacity, they can do those documents themselves. If they no longer have capacity, then we're talking about the court-authorised will or they have lost capacity in there is no will, then look at the legislation on incapacity. That's different in each state and territory in Australia. So if you're in New South Wales, you need to look at the New South Wales legislation to see what would happen to their estate on their death. And enduring power of attorney and guardianship, if they have capacity, they can make it. If they don't have capacity, then an application to NCAT if it's required. Sometimes there are informal arrangements that people can engage in. So if you have a close relationship and say it's a partnership, like um, two adults who are long-term partners and one has access to the bank accounts of the other, the loss of capacity by one partner is not fatal because the other partner has access to all of the important things they need and you don't need to run off and get a guardianship because if, if the partner needs surgery and this is their life partner, a lot of the hospitals and doctors don't need an order or an enduring guardianship to accept that they are next of kin. So there are a lot of informal, undocumented events that occur in people's life where there is a close relationship or a very close next of kin that people accept. Of course, that won't help you with banks and Centrelink and Medicare, but if you have access to those online, that's not going to be an issue. But for doctors and medical procedures, usually the next of kin is often regarded without a guardianship document or an order. What can someone do if it comes time to make decisions in hospital and decisions around organ donation have to be made very quickly? And you might recall having had a conversation with someone because that is often something people might talk about. They'll go, oh yeah, if that happened to me, I would absolutely want my organs to be donated. But when it comes to it, they're not on the register. What happens? Well, it's very complex because if they have a will, then you would you would see whether or not they made a specification in their will. That's the easiest thing. As you say, they could um, register on the organ donation register. That makes it much simpler. If neither of those things occur, then you have to engage at an incredibly stressful time with the medical team and determine whether or not your loved one wished to be an organ donor and then which organs they're prepared to donate. And then there's complex legislation under the Human Tissues Act as to who is authorised and whether they're a senior next of kin and the medical staff will have to assist in determining who is the appropriate person as the senior next of kin to make that determination and whether they can accept it. What can happen if there is dispute among relatives over someone's final wishes and there isn't any paperwork? Well, that's the start of the end, isn't it? Because it happens regularly and 
different people have different views of the universe and, you know, sometimes you might have arguments about organ donation or how how the person's going to be dealt with in end-of-life decisions and it's extremely complex and that's why um, enduring guardianship largely gives certainty and most importantly, the person whose life has the opportunity to say what their wishes are. It's very hard to imagine what someone's wishes are because Australians particularly are very bad at talking about these delicate subjects. Feelings, um, it's, well, it's emotion. Not, I mean, it's not really dinner table conversation, you know, oh, do you want to be kept alive by artificial means? Let's talk about death. Yeah, do you want to be buried or cremated? Oh, I've heard about these new green burial methods. What do you reckon? <laughs> it's, they're difficult conversations and by doing your estate planning, your will, your power of attorney, your enduring guardianship, you're leaving those disputes aside because it's specified in the documents. No one has to imagine what your wishes are. It's documented. That's the gold standard. If that doesn't exist, then as you say, children or siblings or or partners, whoever it may be, then might argue about, oh, no, well, they don't want to donate their organs or, oh, no, they wanted to be buried, not cremated. Oh, mum was scared of heat. She wouldn't want to be cremated. This is making me think of the opening part of the Barbie movie when Barbie, like, sets the whole thing in motion by saying, do you guys ever think about dying? And it, like, completely, like, ruins the whole vibe of the party. But what you're saying is that people should pick your timing and pick the moment but have these conversations. Absolutely. I mean, they're... You know, the only thing we can guarantee in life is that we'll pay two things. We'll pay tax at some point and we're going to die. There's no magic in this. We're all going to die. It's only the timing and the age that's that's the novel bit. None of us have a crystal ball. Planning for it, I mean, you don't have to be morbid about it, but getting your affairs in order. I mean, like, Don't be weird about it. Just <laughs> do the smart thing. I mean, we're all going to die, let's be honest. I mean, it's just acknowledging that fact and going, well, actually, I want to have a say in what happens. It's, it's about me. For the one time in my life, this is about me. I'm going to be driving this train. And that's really what getting your affairs in order is about. That's actually one thing when you say, I want to make this about me. And this is going back to an idea of something that someone could put in a will. Is that a place also to outline wishes, say, when it comes to like burial or cremation or how you want your funeral to be, what songs you want played at your funeral, all those sorts of things? Is, is a will the right place to put that information? For cremation and burial, absolutely. For organ donation, yes. And then if you have views about the funeral service and, you know, whether or not we're going to hear Amazing Grace again, that usually is in a document called a Memorandum of Wishes, which is a separate document. Um, but it can be in the will. There's no reason it can't be, but it's traditionally not. We usually confine the will to appointing, revoking earlier wills, appointing an executor, giving all away our worldly belongings, whether or not we're to be cremated or buried, and organ donation. They're the main topics. And then if you've got some fruity stuff that you want to include, you know, if, if you want Aunt Edna's side table to go to someone specific, well, obviously that should go in the will. But if there's any other fruity topics like, you know, I don't want X at my funeral because I don't <laughs> like them anymore. Um, you this, know, do, you see, do you see examples of this? Oh, of we like do. people's we do. really salty wills? <laughs> Can you think of examples of like the strangest stuff you've ever seen where someone's like, I do not want this person at my funeral? 
Well, the saltiest one I ever saw was where someone only gave a gift to a relative if they were married and over 38. And I thought, <laughs> wow. That's Thanks, Mum. Yeah. And another one where they had to be a member of a particular church. Forget freedom of religion. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask as well about when it comes to family members having to to chase things up and, and sort of realising that someone may not have done a will. And if people are in a moment, and particularly if something has happened suddenly and they're heartbroken and they're thinking, I don't know how to even begin this process and I'm also devastated and I just don't feel like I can do this right now, how fast after someone's death do people have to act? Is there some grace period where people can think, I just need to take a moment, process what's happened, and then start to dive into the practicalities? The court requires that you apply for a grant of probate or letters of administration within six months of the date of death, but it's not a rule that's applied. You can explain the delay in any late application. I mean, I have matters where no one's applied for years and years and years, and nothing happens. You just have to explain the delay. Largely, it's determined by the person's affairs. I mean, if if you have someone with a house with a mortgage, you're going to have to get your skates on because the bank's going to want the mortgage paid. It largely depends on how their affairs are structured and who's involved. I mean, a lot of people, as you say, are mourning and don't have the strength or the desire to deal with it because of the finality of death. And they need time to grieve. And that's absolutely normal. So it's largely as long as you like is the answer. But by the same token, my experience is sometimes when people get through that post-death process and get it all sorted and tidied up, they sometimes can't grieve until it's done because they feel like it's an unresolved matter that they really need in their heart to determine and then they can grieve properly for their loved one. If someone is left a house in a will and it comes with that mortgage, does that mortgage just instantly transfer to the person who the house is left to? I'm going to give you the famous lawyer answer. It depends. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> if only we had a dollar for every time we hear that I on the show. <laughs> um, if the will specifies that they get the house free of the mortgage and, and there's other assets to meet the mortgage, then they get the house without the mortgage. If the will is silent on it or, well, that, yeah, that's the only way they get it is if the will is silent on it because on intestacy they wouldn't get it, a specific gift, then they get it with the mortgage. So if the will is silent on it, then the asset bears the liability. This is probably a bit of an unusual example, but if someone was left a home and there's a dip in the housing market and you think, even if I want to sell this, I'm going to end up making a loss and I just don't want this. This is too much drama and I want to reject it. Can you ever reject something that's given to you in a will? Yes, you can disclaim a gift under a will, but also the other option is you can negotiate. I mean, you can't enforce that, but you can consider your options and talk with the other beneficiaries and see if there's some solution. But bottom line is you cannot inherit debt. You know, we ha- often have estates that are insolvent where um, the liabilities of the willmaker exceed their assets and no one's signing up for those and there's nothing to dispose of because creditors get all of it. So it's somewhat academic that there might be a gift because if the creditors exceed the assets, like it's like any insolvency, but you can't inherit debt from someone. Even if you're named in the will, you, you simply can't inherit debt. A lot of the examples we've talked about involve people who 
they've got a partner or, or children or family and I suppose a, an obvious person for things to to pass to if they don't have a will. But what if someone doesn't have a will and they've died without a partner, without children? There's really no one who would probably be coming forward to make a claim. What happens to their assets and their possessions? Well, ultimately, New South Wales trustee and guardian um, usually apply for those probates or letters of administration where people, they can't find any relatives. It's, it's very complex. They're looking overseas for distant relatives. I've got one at the moment where there's maybe 16 or 17 relatives across three continents they're trying to find. There's no will. person who passed away had some assets and they're having to get a, a, a grant. And if ultimately they can't satisfactorily follow every rabbit down every burrow to find all these relatives, if they have tried and approached every other country where the person might have relatives and they can't get some of the documents, then ultimately it's an application to the court. It's a next of kin application where they ask the court to sanction a distribution to the relatives they can find. But it's just another reason to do a will because all of these tricky applications are terribly expensive. Like I've had matters where I've spent thousands of dollars on births, deaths and marriages certificates in multiple jurisdictions just to find out who the relatives are. It's highly complex and expensive, all which could be avoided with a simple will. When you're talking about having to sort of trawl countries and jurisdictions to find people, and I imagine that when you do, it might come as a surprise? Does it ever come as a surprise? So I'm, the reason I'm asking this is that I can imagine that people could, you know, get an email saying, hi, just letting you know that you've got this relative in Nigeria. They've passed away. You're a relative. You're being left $3 million US dollars. So if you just send me a bank account details, we'll get this sorted for you. A, how can people make sure that these claims are valid? And B, what is the response that you get when when you have to sort of track down very distant relatives who often don't know that they've been left money by someone who they've perhaps never even met? Well, of course, we've all heard about a lot of scams on the internet where people hand over their bank account details, so you wouldn't hand over your bank account details. But we often have to contact relatives who have no idea that they may be beneficiaries of a long-lost relative's estate, and they do get surprised, and the immediate sense that they have is, oh, this is a scam. Um, and, you know, you just have to provide the documents so that they can satisfy themselves that they are the person referred to or related somehow and they would know, um, you know, the names of their parents and their siblings or some other distant relatives and they would be able to track it independently through their own family to know whether or not they had any genetic relationship with the deceased person or not, but immediately you would be thinking it's a scam. But if you did your homework and you made inquiries about whether or not you were related to this person and you asked for all of the source documents, you would then be in a position to satisfy yourself whether it was a scam or legit. Well, Monica, two things. Firstly, I promise that this time I actually really will go and get a will done. And secondly, while you said that it's often not a topic that people like talking about, I have actually had a great time talking to you about death. So thank you so much, Monica Rosmarinick from Keypoint Law. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Amy. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. 
The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens. And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.